Lord, more programming crap. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to version 2.0 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have David Brady. I am fully backwards compatible. We have Katrina Owen. Hello from Denver. Avdi Grimm. I'm from Pennsylvania. James Edward Gray. Henceforth I want to be known as Rogue 7 of 9. Josh Susser. My version number can't be expressed as a rational number. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about Ruby version 2.0. Woo! It's about time. Yeah, when did, a, they, when did they release it a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it came uh, out February 25th on Ruby's birthday, I believe. Uh, and, and I think the first mention that Matt's made of Ruby 2 was, what, 11 years ago? <laughs> it was a while. <laughs> They should they should have followed Rake's example and just gone to 10.0. <laughs> nice. I think they just should have confused everyone and gone right to Ruby 3. Yeah. Ruby 3000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. So so what so what is this Ruby 2 thing? What it is comes it? after Ruby 1. Okay. <laughs> it's the next hey, come on, the if, next major release if, of Ruby 2. Yep. If Ruby 1.8 was good enough for Ma and Grandma, it's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. So, so I have a question just to throw out right now because we're running into this with a with a client. Um, is Ruby 2.0 patch level zero ready for production? Yes. Well, that was fast. Because they're skittish about. Done? I mean, the standard skittish response is, "Well, we never install patch level zero. and and I'm replying that no, 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 one nine two and one nine three and one nine one were the release candidates. I mean, 193 was the RC for Ruby 2.0. So, <laughs> so Ruby 2.0, ready for patch have, level zero, have, ready for production. We have two questions here, I think, right there. One is WTF Ruby's versioning system, which I am in yes. full agreement with. <laughs> and uh, number two is, um, is Ruby 2 a significant enough re-architecting that we're going to see a lot of, you know, version O bugs. I think that one's pretty interesting. Let's try that one first. The, I, I say no, I don't think you will. Um, Ruby 2.0 is not a drastically incompatible. In fact, it's almost uh, fully compatible with 1.9. There are some minor changes that made it not. But uh, it's super compatible. It's mostly a refining of the VM. So we're talking incremental improvements everywhere and stuff. So generally the rule is one nine stuff works and works better. So I don't really think you're going to see a ton of 1.0 issues. Uh, so, so James, 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 uh, I, I won't contradict you there, but, but you know, that said, I've seen a couple tweets and blog posts about people discovering at least minor issues in Ruby 2 that have um, been problems for them. So we're, we're upgrading right now at work all of our systems, and we have a large uh, infrastructure, many pieces and stuff like that. 
Um, the, the upgrade isn't perfectly seamless. We have seen some minor stuff. Um, but I mean, this is, this is minor stuff. Like, I think the two main things you're going to run into upgrading. One, the default encoding switch from ASCII, US ASCII to UTF-8. Um, so sometimes, depending on how you use regular expressions and stuff like that, there can be a scenario where you have an encoding issue now that you didn't have before. Um, it's generally very easy to fix. I mean, it's, it's not usually a problem, and yay for UTF-8 being the default anyway, right? And the other one is in strings and such, uh, things like cares, bytes, code points, stuff changed such that they no longer return enumerators, they return arrays. That might cause you a slight problem depending on how you were using them, but those are probably the two largest incompatibilities. Okay. So, uh... But, you, you were talking but, about incremental um, improvements, and to me, it an improvement, it really depends on what you care about. Um, so are these improvements to the like the API so that it's easier to use, or these improvements in performance? Or, I mean, what kind of improvements are we talking about here? Yes. Largely performance, I would say. Like yeah, the two, is- the two things that I noticed the most were, or not noticed because I haven't, um, I haven't used it extensively. But the garbage collection is um, significantly improved, and that's um, that's actually pretty exciting. I think we should probably talk about it. Another thing is um, the requires the way that um, things get required is also um, greatly improved. I believe. There's one more massive performance improvement, and that's that method dispatch has been heavily optimized. Nice. Do you know any of the details of, of the optimizations? In the method dispatch or the requires or the garbage collection? Method dispatch. I, I don't know. There, I know that um, it's mentioned. I watched uh, Peter Cooper's uh, Ruby 2.0 walkthrough uh, videos. It was a Kickstarter project that I backed, and he's slowly doling them out to us um so it's not out in public yet but it will be so just keep an eye on ruby weekly until it pops but he mentioned that basically there were like there were something like 11 cases or something that uh method dispatch had to work through when it was working out a uh you know how to call a method or whatever and that's been uh trimmed down just so basically it has less scenarios to work through and therefore works faster now, nice. I saw Koichi give a talk on Ruby 2 at RubyConf last year, and he talked about a lot of the, the VM changes and optimizations. Um, here's, that, here's a link for that on YouTube in the show notes there. Um, and, and he talked about some of the optimizations in the VM. I think they're doing more with, um, with like inline method caches and uh, you know, bytecode level optimizations. He, he walked through a, like a lot of the very particular cases and the code paths and showed, oh, well, you know, we're, we're taking this from, you know, 700 instructions and now we can do it in 85, that kind of thing. And um, so if, if you're really curious about those optimizations, uh, that's a good watch. But yeah, generally across the board, I, I think you're going to see some speed up. Um, most people are noticing uh, Rails launch time has improved because, again, more optimizations to the whole requirement set, uh, requiring stuff like uh, Katrina said. And um, 
the method dispatch, you know, is going to affect the entire system. So yeah, it should be, should be significantly faster and noticeable faster. Nice. And, and I, I want to kind of uh, go back to, you were talking about Peter's video on uh, Ruby two. I'd really like to get my hands on it. His, his uh, Ruby one nine video was really, really helpful in understanding what goes on or what's going on with the new version. So um, I, I just can't recommend that highly enough. I'm excited. He's doing another one for Ruby two. Yeah, it's really good. And my complaint for the one nine one is it was this like massive three hour slog, you know, so you really had to gear up for it. The two oh one he broke into chunks. So there's like a video just on keyword arguments, for example, and it's like six minutes or something, you know, so you can take it in uh chunks and look at what's interesting to you and stuff. So yeah, the two oh is even better than the one nine in my opinion. Nice. I'm really excited by these keyword arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, yeah, me, me too. It, you know, it seems like there's a couple categories of um, things in in Ruby two. There's uh, th- things that are you know like like keyword arguments that change how the language itself is, and you know because mm-hmm. that you know that's an actual change to how the language works. And there, and there's a couple of those. There's some. Um, Sort of implementation efficiency things like method dispatch and garbage collection, uh, and then there's uh, like API level changes that are you know adding nice features and functionality, but uh, those are things that you know probably could have been done on one nine, uh, but you know they just decided not to for whatever reason. So can I ask so- a question about the keyword arguments? Because it looks like they're optional; like you don't need to use keyword arguments. It's just That's kind right. of a convenience thing that mm-hmm. sort of does the hash notation behavior stuff, except you don't have to then, you know, get the options and, you know, reference it by key. Mm-hmm. Is is that right. more or less what it is? Yes, it is actually backed by a hash. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it puts it into local variables. Um, Peter has some really good examples of it in his videos. Basically, it just takes some super common cases in Ruby, like how we would make that last argument options and then use the kind of syntactic sugar that Ruby has that treats the last uh, parameter as hash-like as long as it looks like it. But then you'd have to do things like, right, if you wanted defaults or whatever, you'd have to merge those defaults into the hash because if you set it, in the hash in the def line, right? Then, then it would just get overwritten by what got passed in. Whereas this, you can set a default per item, and then if that item's passed, it it gets its value. If not, it gets its default. So it basically just really shortens up and really cleans up a very common method usage in Ruby, much like you see all throughout Rails, right? With the uh, the various methods that, that take lots of different keyword style arguments. I've seen some discussions about using options in method arguments where I guess one side of the argument is that you're adding complexly, complexity like like nothing else. Like you're increasing the arity of the meth of the method even though it might not look like it, and that um, this can create a lot more paths through your code. Do you guys think about that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's a really good point. Even Sandy talked about that when we had her on, right? Like, yeah. you, what, what was her rule? You can't can't have more than four arguments, and throwing it all in the hash doesn't make it any better, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But no cheating. But you, she said. Right. Yeah, cheating. Right. But uh, you are trading like kinescence of position or something for like kinescence of name, right? Which I think yeah. we tend to prefer. Um, I think it can clear things up, but I, but I think you're right that it leads to the tendency is, oh, I can throw one more key in that hash, right? And keyword arguments probably helps with that in a lot of cases and that to throw one more key in that hash means you got to go up there and put one more keyword argument on that method unless you use yeah. the, there is a slurpy syntax. But, uh, but if you have to go up and put that other keyword argument on there, then it's like the same as if you put another argument on there. So you'll feel yeah. that pain more, right? I'm kind of excited by them because uh, I fell in love with named arguments when I was playing with Smalltalk. And there's a kind of a cultural idiom in Smalltalk that you use the named arguments to turn the method call into, or the message send rather, into something that reads semantically, uh, you know, reads well. And right now, the examples that I'm seeing of keyword arguments are kind of arbitrary. You know, it's just like, oh, look, we're not really hiding the fact that this is backed by a hash and they can come in in any order and whatnot. But I think if we see some small talk people get in here and start to establish a culture of your keyword arguments need to semantically, you know, scan so that, you know, you could have, you know, point dot distance to, you know, you know, to, and then the two is that, you know, two colon, you know, some other point. That's a lot more readable and a lot more under, and, and it actually reads out, right? Point dot distance to, you know, other point instead of distance underscore two or, you know, whatever. That's the approach that Objective C has taken. And um, the interesting thing, the difference, I guess, between that and what we've got here with keyword arguments is that there, um, those keywords that define the different um, pieces or the different um, arguments that you're passing in are actually um, part of the signature. So if, right. if that key is different, then it's a different uh, method call. And in, in Ruby with keyword arguments, it doesn't appear to be the case um, no. so right. much. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I, I really do like that thinking of what, and this is what Dave is saying, is that, you know, it it is part of the entire description of what the message is. So it's not just um, go to some point, point, colon, blah, 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 but it's actually, you know, go to, you know, distance and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, with distance, you know, at angle, you know, and then you can do things that way. Yeah. The the thing that that is a little... Um, Confusing when you get into that that kind of keyword uh, selector, I guess on a me- on a message, is um, what what is the equivalence between selectors? Because it it seems like um, it, it, okay, so this is going to get a little a little tricky, object oriented, uh, detail stuff. If you have in Smalltalk, you have these two selectors, like you're saying. If you and and if they have different keywords, they're actually different method selectors. You know, they're different messages. So mm-hmm. if you have a superclass that implements, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, do with, and then an, and then a subclass that um, implements do with with, those are completely different methods. One doesn't shadow mm-hmm. the other, but right. with the uh, with the keywords, you can, I believe, in Ruby, you can re- rearrange the order of the keywords. Yes, that's yes. true. Yeah. So that, and in some cases, the keyword arguments can be optional. Yes, and, also true. Right. So that 
Now, now, James, how does that affect uh, equivalence between method selectors? Does it discriminate based on the set of keywords, or is it only on the main method name? Only on the name, just like okay. just like Ruby always has been. Yeah. Okay, so that um, that that's a that's a bit of a difference, but I think that helps keep things uh, much more tractable and sane. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I like I like keyword selectors, but um, at the same time, that would have made a, a very different language. Yeah. So yeah. my other question is, you have this wrap that uh, on on the um, Ruby 2.0.0 in detail that, that James shared with us, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. It says wrap, and then it has before and after. Can you just pass um, just a regular string in there without saying before and after, and will it work? Or do you actually have to name the arguments? The way that they're defined there, they're given defaults so that if you don't pass them in, um, the defaults from the argument list will be used. Okay, but if you pass it three arguments, will it treat the second argument as before and the third argument as after? No, you actually have to specify the keyword. Okay. Yeah, if you don't pass uh, before and an after, uh, then yeah, they they don't go. They have to be named okay. like that. Yeah. Now, so for the listeners that are not looking at this web page, um, we're talking about positional arguments, and we've got some keywords that are called before and after, and those are actually the names of the keywords. If you're wrapping a string in a token that is supposed to come before it and after it. That's what, when we say before and after. That's what we're talking about. We're actually reading a word off the page. We're not yeah. actually talking about position in the order of the arguments. And yeah, and the question basically was, can you substitute? Because they're they're put in a specific order, and so I was asking right. if if positionality and uh, the key, and indexing by keyword were interchangeable, and they're not. Mm -hmm. I like that uh, if you specify it as a named keyword that you have to call it with a named keyword. Yeah. I, I I like that. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's crucial. <laughs> it's, yep. um, keywords are keywords. Right, yeah, let's, swapping connectors of name for. Oh, go ahead, real quick. Uh, I was using the big word, man. I'm saying swapping <laughs> swapping connectors of name for position just gets you in trouble. Yeah. So. Yep. All right. Um, I want to move on to some of these other features we've been talking about this one for a while, and I want to get through a few more before we end the show. Um, yeah. What What are some of the other features of Ruby two that you guys like that you're excited? Well, about? I. I really like percent I. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> so so th this is um, th this is I get to be a, I get to toot my own horn a little bit here. This is my feature. The, this was I, w I was uh, I think I made a tweet oh. saying saying how much I wanted this feature, and within a few hours, Aaron Patterson had a patch for it. So well, then I'm going to give so, Aaron the that's credit. That's cool. Yeah. Well, hey, hey, he gets the credit for doing, but I'm the idea guy, right? Oh, there you go. Yep. Uh, yep. So, and, and and I'll explain the the mysterious choice of the letter I. Okay. So for for people listening along, the percent I is like percent W for making an array of of strings, but it makes an array of symbols, which is something that you want to do all the time when you're like setting up a before filter in your oh, controller yeah. and you want to give it a list of symbols, right? So, um, and and it has the lowercase and capital versions for uh, plain and interpolated. And uh, this is basically, this is how, um, how a, a array or a symbol array literals worked in Smalltalk. And I was like, hey, I want this in, in Ruby 2. So now we have it in Ruby 2. So I have to ask, do you know how they pick these letters? Like percent yes, W for strings and percent Q for I percent? Do. Yeah, yeah, okay. So let's see, Josh, me, Abdi, anybody else have guesses on percent I? Well, Josh, this is this is your feature, so. 
Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, he gets to explain. <laughs> I, I, picked, I picked it. So, so we can't do percent s for symbol because that was already taken as you know percent s in Ruby uh, basically defines a single symbol with you know with funny curly brace quoting. Okay. Um, so, so the other way that you create a symbol from a string in Ruby is you call the intern method on it, which means Actually, it. You know, it it's interesting yeah, so, you say that, Josh. Like that—that that is true. I but I never see that in code. Everybody uses interns alias two underscore s y m. I know that's, it's, yep. that's because, the yep. one I see. So well, that's, because that's that's, that's that, more recent. When it's yeah. done being an intern, is it going to get a real job? I mean, when I when I started writing Ruby, it was all Probably it was not. all dot intern. If you want to turn a, a, a symbol a string into a symbol, it was all dot intern. Right. So so intern is how. To sim is what? So you know, you're saying, oh, I want this to be a symbol. Intern is how you get it, right? So, but right. A, anyway, so so the percent i comes from you know i for intern. So that's okay. yeah. it, I only had a moment to come up with a and, and that has nothing to do with with low paid entry level workers. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it is short for internalize, which we won't even. I don't think that that's too long a discussion for this. Yeah, it's a mess too. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Goes back to Lisp, at least. Yeah. 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 Are there any um, other features you guys are excited right, about? I, I got a favorite feature. Okay. Unbound methods from a module can be bound to any object. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so before this, Avdi, before this, just um, correct me if I'm wrong, before this you had to bind to like top level, the top object, the top level object, and then you could yeah. bind it to anything, whereas now you can bind to a so, ma uh, module. So Ruby has this concept of method objects, where if you call dot method and give it the name of a method on some object, you can get a method object. Uh, you can also call on a module or a class. You can call dot instance method and get a and and get uh, a, back an object which is an unbound method, and uh, that unbound method can then be bound to another object by calling dot bind, and then from that you get a method object and that which you can then call dot call on. And this is all stuff that uh, really is only useful when you're doing sort of infrastructure work. You know, you're, you're creating uh, interesting new infrastructure for other people to build on. It's not something that you're going to haul out when you're just writing application code. But it's, uh, but up until now, if you, you know, if you had a class, if you had like a module foo and you said dot instance method on it, you know, for one of its methods, and then you tried to bind that method to a class bar. Um, or an object of class bar and call it, uh, Ruby would object. Ruby was very, very strict about, you know, if it, the, the type that it's being rebound, the type of the object it's being rebound to has got to be the same. Um, and, and there was this, there's this horrible, horrible kludge that I've seen, uh, to get around it where you would actually like define a meth, briefly define a method on basic object, capture a reference to it, and then, remove that meth that temporary method once you'd captured the reference to the method object and since everything inherits from basic object that that effectively gives you a a method object which which can be an unbound method which can be bound to anything but now they relax that for modules so if you so you can you can take a, a an unbound method reference uh from any module and then rebind it to anything it, so why is that cool i mean it's, more practically what do, what do you use that for <laughs> So I've been playing with this a little bit, um, and I already had some 
I'd already run into this limitation in some of the stuff that I've been playing with. Now, I mean, it depends on your definition of practical. I like abusing Ruby. I like kind of pushing it to its limits. Um, I did an article series recently. One was in practicing Ruby, and then um, the sequel was on my own blog uh, about implementing prototype-based inheritance in Ruby. And I ran up pretty hard against this limitation uh, as I was looking at different ways of implementing this. And uh, so one thing that I kind of just uh, played with a little bit in preparation for this episode was um, re-implementing some of my code for that article uh, using these rebindable methods uh, on, from a module. And uh, it, it works, and, it, and it's actually uh, a bit more full-featured than the, the technique that I'd gone for. Um, something else I played with a little bit this morning was um, like a, a DCI kind of thing uh, where I had... Uh, the ability to to give an object a role and then take it away again. Whereas typically the the implementations of that you see examples of you're doing like object.extend, which you know extends the object with a module, but then you can't take that away again. It's you know it's going to be extended with that with that module until the end of time, uh, which you know may mean you wind up with some other code that has dependencies on that extended behavior, which really shouldn't. And uh, so you can do some fun stuff where you um, can almost sort of kind of uh, simulate the ability to mix in modules and then unmix them again. All right. So you're talking about fairly low level language hacking and maybe framework construction, but this isn't the sort of feature that you would recommend people use in their application code. No, no, definitely not application code stuff, but uh, it's certainly, it may clean up some uh, framework implementation. Okay. Yeah. Cool I can stuff. see that, and it, it uh, there are some there are some nice ways that it plays along with the uh, the prepend feature. But somebody else can talk about prepend. Let's do it. Who wants to talk about prepend? Uh, I, I'll I'll try and explain prepend. Go for it. <laughs> I think that's half the battle, right? <laughs> Let's start with the <laughs> definition. So uh, okay, so we we all know uh, how inheritance works in Ruby. You have uh, sort of straight line single inheritance. And then we have modules that you can mix in, giving you effectively multiple inheritance. But the way that happens is that everything gets linearized into a straight path from your class all the way up to, I guess, basic object is how it is in Ruby 2. Um, and, you, and given it's Ruby, you can always reopen a class and monkey patch it uh, and, and add stuff into it. But if there's a class that you want to um, in uh, basically... Um, you don't want to uh, like add, let's see, you have a class and it has a method, uh, you know, we'll call it foo, and you want to change what it does with foo by adding some, some functionality to it. Uh, prepend lets you add a new module worth of behavior, just like you're um, mixing it in, you're including that module, but it does it uh, sort of in a pretend invisible subclass. So it's putting the methods in the object in front of the methods in the class. So if you, if, so if you have a foo method in, you know, in the, in this module and in the class and in its superclass and you do a prepend of your extension module, that'll come in. Yeah. And then you, you, and then you send foo to an instance of that class. It'll hit the method in the in the prepended module nice. before it'll hit the method in the class itself, and this lets nice. you do the kind of thing that you were using alias method chain for um, years ago, and but it's a lot cleaner. And this is uh, Yehuda approved, 
So, <laughs> so I have a, a fair, fair amount of confidence that it won't do uh, ridiculous things and break stuff. So, so, right. so, the, so like, the advantage here is if you have 15 classes that all use a module and you want to inject something between those classes and that module, Prepend will let you do that. Well, it's it's it'll actually let you put stuff in front of the class. It's the class's own method. So, like one example I'd give is is if you let's say I write a macro uh, called memoize, and you can give it the name of a method, and it'll magically turn that method into a memoize method, where you know for a given set of argument of inputs, um, it'll save off those. It'll save off the result somewhere in a hash or something. And and so if it if it finds you know if it finds a match for the arguments, it'll give you the memoized. Uh, result instead of calculating it again, you know, and so you you define your method, your expensive method inside your class, and then you say mem memoize and colon method name uh, to to memoize that, you know, to to turn that method into a a memoized method. Well, previously you would have had to either do an alias method chain in order to do that, you know, where you you alias it to a to an like old method name, and then you know write a new method that calls that old method name or you'd have had to do some crazy stuff where you capture a you like capture an unbound method uh kind of some of the stuff i was talking about before you delete the method you capture an unbound method delete the method then then overwrite it um but but you include a reference to the to the captured old method in the new method uh that you metaprogram in uh this lets you metaprogram and do that metaprogramming in a cleaner way where you you in create a module create a new module for that memoized version to go into and then you just prepend the module to the class and you know the old method is still there and your new method just gets called gets gets hit first in the lookup before the class's own method and then the you know that method that gets hit first can call super to get at right. the uh, the original behavior which is uh, nice. probably the cleanest way we've come across yet to do that kind of macro uh, method rewriting it's it's almost it's really aspect useful. oriented. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's it, a little it's, it's 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 getting towards some of the languages, some of the OO languages, um, where methods could choose how to delegate how to delegate to other implementations. You know, where you could say, you know, you could choose to forward to like a higher level method or to forward to a lower level method. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, to a, a more specific method uh, or version of this method. Yeah, I, but I, I like this because it doesn't really break the way that people think about objects and messages. Yeah. Right. If yeah, you it, consider the, if you consider the lookup line, uh, the lookup path of the method to be a straight line, the only thing that's changed, you always had a way to stick something behind a point on a line. Now you can choose if you want to stick it behind a point on a line or in front of the point on the line. Right. So, yeah, right. Yeah, nothing really changed. It just gave you a greater flexibility. Yeah. So the experiment that I would like to do that I haven't uh, been able to play with yet is um, if you have um, like a couple, uh, you know, if you have an inheritance hierarchy and you're trying and so like uh, you have A at the top and then the subclass is B and then the subclass is C and then you go up to B and you prepend something onto class B. Does that get inserted between B and C? And I know yes. it's hard to talk about these things. So, yes. th but that that does get inserted in between them. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's so what I mentioned by this would let you basically inject like if you had a module that had fifteen subclasses, 
um, this would let you inject at one place that would automatically intercept that call chain. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. And, and yeah, the, the sure. nice thing that I see about it is that you don't then have to understand the full um, chain all the way up. You just have to know which one you want to put it in front of instead of trying to figure out what's in front of it and then put it in after that. Right. So, so the the thing that I would um, I would call out as a potential red flag with prepend is the um, is I I would worry about people uh, sort of going whole hog on this, or going hog wild on this where um, you know uh, so with rack uh, let's see people I, I want to use an analogy here with rack where the Part, one of the problems people run into with rack is that every time you're inserting a new rack middleware in your um, in your web application, you're inserting um, you know because of the way rack works, each piece of of middleware calls the neck calls the call method <laughs> or sends the call message to the next piece of middleware, and the whole execution state, the whole stack frame of the previous piece of middleware is around while you're calling the next piece of middleware mm -hmm. and 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 if you have enough pieces of middleware you can have a really deep call stack which is not really good for all sorts of reasons um, yeah the, and and with the module prepend if you're always doing this and then calling super that's the equivalent thing where you're you, you keep you keep you know stacking on methods and getting you know your call stack deeper and deeper in general that's not a big problem but some of the issues that people have working with stuff like like rails where you have an incredibly deep call stack is it becomes hard to understand what's going on in your code it's it's slow there's uh, you know it's it mm -hmm. uses a lot of memory uses a lot of stack space and that if the if people just use a really generic mechanism like prepend to compose behavior uh, this way that can lead you down a path that can get you into oh I have this incredibly deep call stack I'm I'm exhausting system resources in a particular way, and that that oftentimes when you're when you're doing stuff like that it's better to shift around your um, you know basically the architecture of how you're composing that stuff so that you're doing it in a way that's a little more friendly to how the language works and yeah. and maybe a little more object oriented so you, you you so you surface the the composition attributes of your code into a place where you can uh, work on and reason on them in the language. And you know, so people are talking about changing rack so that it's not this really deep call stack to a more iterative model where you, oh, great, you know, we use data structures within the language. We have objects and messages that work around. And you know, so, e so each piece of middleware has some state in an instance. You call the next one, you get stuff back, and you have your state in your instance. It's not stuck on the stack. Yeah, when you got started, Josh, I was thinking that you were going to say that prepend is the new stuff and that include is for chumps. But uh, yeah, you make a good point. I like I like where you went with that. And and the rack example really illustrates well, I think, where you would go with that. Yeah. So so I yeah I mean I don't think there's any problem with using prepend. It sounds it seems like a cool feature. It's just when people get into oh hey you know I'm just going to use all this new hotness for everything. You know you got to be careful where you end up there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now, Speaking what, of exploding stack sizes, um, one other little yes. thing that I really like is is that we can tweak the both the VM stack size and the um, and particularly fiber stack sizes now, which I think nice. it's, it's it's I mean it it's something that you shouldn't that hopefully you won't need, but it's something that without it it's not really I don't really feel like it's an industrial strength 
language, you know? So um, so Ruby can finally have a non-hacky workaround solution to the Ackerman uh, function in the language shootout? Oh, I don't I don't know that one. There's a language shootout and one of the one of the black eyes for Ruby is computing the Ackerman function, which is a non-trivially non tail non-optimizable recursive function. Um oh. it, it the, the stack size is like exponential and Ruby blows up somewhere around 30,000 and you need yeah. in order to compute it you need a stack size for this shootout you need a stack size of like half a million. And there was oh, okay. just nothing you could do. Somebody rewrote it uh, in Ruby to be stackless, um, okay. but that you know that was like a, a they were cheating. They completely reworked right. around the problem. Now you've so been able awesome. to adjust stuff like that in in REE Ruby Enterprise Edition for a while, um, but mm-hmm. even there, I don't I don't think that you could adjust uh, fibers. As a matter of fact, I don't know if REE was up to the level that had fibers, and fibers are have really small stack sizes by default, so. In some cases, it actually makes sense to be able to adjust your uh, your fiber stack size in order to make them useful. So uh, I, I do want to ask: Wasn't this one of the features that some of the um, the alternate VM implementers were worried about the prepend, or was that a, a different feature with like refinements or something? I think that was refinements. Yeah, yeah refinements. Refinements. Refinements was definitely the the feature that I saw most analyzed in terms of impact. So, so let's talk about refinements. Are, are I think we should brush over them because they're not very exciting. But the short, <laughs> yeah. short version is they were extremely watered down to the point where I even doubt their usefulness. Can we say that? Well, yes. Um, unwatered down, were they useful? You know, they solved a problem I didn't have, really, I think <laughs> is the end story. Yeah. The, For me. <laughs> yeah. The the thing about refinements that it is I, I think they do solve a particular class of problems and they and they're always they, the intention with refinements was to create a safe way to monkey patch objects and the the goal was oh oh I have I have some code here and I'm using some code over there and I want it to be different I want to monkey patch it but I don't want my monkey patch of that code to interfere with other code that has that's using that in a different way. And and a and a great example of that is if you're uh, writing some R spec tests or specs, <laughs> however you want to call it, and you want to uh, like patch in the behavior for um, for like your spec uh, DSL somewhere, you can patch that in, and that will only be visible within the spec runner, and it won't interfere with the basic operation of the code elsewhere. So that that I think that's a that's a a cool feature to think about having, but the cost of it just seemed way 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 high, and it had a a big effect on performance. And but I think more importantly, it has an effect on how you think of code. In that, there's now a difference between your view of what how an object behaves and someone else's view of how an object behaves. And you know, personally, I think that's. Uh, that breaks the model for thinking about objects, and you know, and I did a talk about that at, some, at one point. The uh, um, that you know, if I have an object and I send a message to it, it should behave the same way as anybody else having an object and sending a message to it. So that's that. I think that's a, a philosophical difference about um, whether you should be do, doing those kind of things to classes in this very restricted way, but. 
that aside, I think, uh, you know, James is right. It's just been, it's been so limited in how it operates in the actual release of Ruby two that it's, I don't think it's a sort of fair test of refinements anyway, but, um, I, it sounds like they're never going away. I know it's a quote experimental feature, but you know, from listening to Matt's talk about it, I think they're just, you know, they're going to be stick around in one way or another. I for yeah, one I welcome guess, our new namespaced overlords. <laughs> I guess they keep hoping they'll find the right implementation. Honestly, I think there are so much cooler things in Ruby and that we can do and stuff. I, I, I'm for dropping them on the floor and cutting all our losses, you know. But I don't. Yeah, I yeah. don't think I'm it does. Hard see, enough to it, understand them. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I think. I think that's what what needs to happen, right? The first shoe is has been dropped, which is, here they are, and they're going to be a headache. The other shoe that we're waiting for is, oh my gosh, you guys, here is the killer implementation for it. And then all of a sudden, everyone's going to be on board with them. See, I, I think hope. Josh has about the best case scenario, which is the RSpec DSL. Something like refinements yeah. doesn't even make sense in, in Rails. Like, there's no reason for Rails not just to modify the entire world and stuff like that. And right. if it used refinements, it would basically want to apply them everywhere. So there's really no point. So yeah. I think Josh has the best case, but even our spec is moving away from that right now with expect, you call expect, pass the object in, and then the DSL springs off from that. Right. So even our specs going away from that, I, I really think it's a, to me, it's so a solution in search of a problem, I guess. Yeah, if if it does turn out to actually make our lives easier in one way or another, I'm looking forward to learning what that is, but I, I agree with you guys at this point. Okay, so so I think we've touched on refinements enough. Okay, I'm, I'm, okay. so now I'm kind of curious, because we, we were talking about features we were excited about, and then we talked about a feature we weren't. Are there any other things in Ruby 2 that you guys are just kind of going, oh, why, why do we have that in there? Okay, so yeah. I, I have one. And and that's uh, lazy enumerables. No, and... I love lazy enumerables. <laughs> okay, so, okay. <laughs> Internet fight! Yay! Yay. Oh. <laughs> okay, so so there's two things about lazy enumerables that I, I okay. So f first I'll say what they are, and then we can and then we can harsh on them. Actually, James, first why don't you say, say what they you are, say, and then I'll tell you why you're yeah, wrong. Yeah. That's right. But this well, is but, this is James. You now get to feel how I feel when he was trashing my precious refinements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. Okay, sorry. so okay, so so lazy lazy enumerables are. Um, Basically, you can get you can get an enumerator for the, for uh, an array or an enumerable class. You can, you can get a an enumerator, and you can pass that thing around, and then people can chain other enumerators onto that, right? And and lazy uh, basically um, turns that from a from an iteration API into a streaming API. So if you have uh, okay. an array of ten things, and you have a, a bunch of these blocks that you've put together as enumerators, you can, you instead of having to run through all 10 things in the array with the first block and then taking that collection that you've created and then run it through the next block the same way, creating another array of 10 things, etc., you can take that first value, run it through the first block, the second block, the third block, you know, all these enumeration blocks. And so and you can do that with each of the values in the array and then collect all those values into a single array at the end. So you've avoided allocating all of this intermediate state that you don't really need if you sort of unroll the loops and do them the other way. Um, and 
yeah, I think it's a fair description. I just want to say that that enumerators were already lazy. Yes, I mean, that's true. You know, you could you could easily construct uh, an infinite, you know, some method that would would just keep keep yielding, uh, keep yielding new values, and then you could say construct an enumerator for it and say dot take three, and it would give you three values without actually trying to uh, iterate to the end. All this does is makes chaining uh, more workable. Okay, so the so the 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 one red flag I have about this. Well, okay, so there's two things. Well, there's two things. One is practical, and that's that now that they have an implementation of this, you know, la lazy enumerables, they found that the, the performance win for it is actually negligible or negative. So it's not that's, actually a big Okay, that's not totally accurate, though. You're right okay. that if you take some existing code and you dot, drop dot lazy on it, you're probably going to take a speed hit. Because it, it adds, obviously, it adds some overhead in order to turn that into lazy. But there are definitely scenarios where you can see speed ups if you're, if you have the advantage, like you, the one you gave earlier, you know, if you have to build three intermediate arrays of 10,000 items each, you know, or you just stream them through one pipeline, which one's mm -hmm. gonna be faster? Yeah, absolutely. I can see that there are situations where you'll get significant performance um, benefits there. The, the, the downside of it is that you, are, you know, we're working in Ruby, which is an object-oriented language. It has side effects, sort of by definition. It's, it's not a functional language that's stateless, that has no side effects. Function, the, the trick with lazy um, infinite lists that you see in functional languages, um, I think is really great. And it gives you a, a an alternate way to do something like iteration. Um, so I, I love that. I love, you know, lazy enumeration that way. The in, in Ruby, because we have side effects, I don't know how likely it is, but I know, but it is possible that you could get yourself in some serious trouble where, because the, um, the, you know, you're taking some objects and running them through the chain of all the enumeration blocks before, you know, and some of those things have gotten to the very end of the chain before other th things in that collection made it through the first one. You've now reordered your operations and, you know, in a theoretical perspective, reordering operations in a language with side effects can get you in serious trouble because you can have things happening out of order and, you know, you can, you can introduce some pretty pernicious bugs that way. In practice, that may not be an issue at all. So I, you know, it, it's a, it's a definite concern for me, but it may not be a, a practical concern in anyone's code. It just it's definitely things. a reason to never, to always, um, you know, try to, try to do functional style or do imperative style. Um, you know, don't mix them up so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an excellent argument for that. The, my only thought is that the way we typically use iterators, especially something like map, where it's going to pass the value in and all you have to do is provide the part that computes the difference and it's going to gather that into an array and stuff. I believe we tend to use that functionally anyway, most of the time. But I think I that's true. I see Josh's concern. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been trying to construct uh, like likely scenarios for people building enumeration blocks that would have this issue and there aren't many. So, yeah. You know, well, you know, I, I think practically it may not be a big problem. What but. I want to, 
what I want to ask is, um, on the performance thing again, um, it seemed like, um, you guys have a pretty good idea of, in, in these instances, there's definitely a performance win, and in these instances, there may not be. Do you kind of have a rule of thumb for that? Like, as far as like the size of the array or innumerable that you're iterating over, or the types of operations that you're doing that will definitely give you the, the uh, performance boost? I think the wonderful thing is that what this does let you do is it lets you pretty easily swap in pipelining behavior where there was previously, you know, where there was previously, uh, you know, process the whole collection, then pass it to the next method, process the whole collection, uh, whatever the, the name for that is. You know, if, if you start the chain out, if you just change the start of the chain to be lazy, my understanding is then, you know, everything following that's going to be lazy um, is, is, is going to be a pipeline. So the great thing is you can profile it, you know, you can profile it as it is, then you can change the, the head of the chain to be lazy and then profile that. And I think Avdi just gave you your test case right there. Yep. If it's one of those things where you would find yourself saying, ah, I should unroll this loop and I can speed it up. Bam. Dot L-A-Z-Y. Yeah. Dot, right. And, mm -hmm. and that's the fundamental change here um, is right. that you don't have to rewrite to try that out. Yeah. You don't have to rewrite all your code to, to find right. out if. if uh, yeah. yeah. So, Benchmark, so, whatever, so, whatever. So that, Go. So, so, I, so I had a chat with, uh, with Charlie Nutter about lazy enumeration in Ruby 2. And you know we had we had a, a nice little chat about you know how it works and performance and all that and uh, it I don't want to put words in his mouth but my takeaway was that the number of scenarios where you will find an actual performance advantage are vanishingly small you know, you know it's it's going to be very hard to find a situation where you will actually get a win from from lazy I suspect that may that may also depend on domain I mean it might that might be very true for a lot of web applications. It might not not be true for some scientific, you know, calculations or something like that. Yeah, but but as you said, I mean, it's it's pretty simple to just, you know, wrap a profiler around it, put lazy on it, take it off, and just see how they compare. Right. I have something that that I think is missing from Ruby two o. What's that? Any significant updating or rewriting or just refurbishment of the libraries, like yeah. one of the. One of the Wait, items. Are you that's talking about the standard libraries? The standard library, like one of the items that is in one of these look lists of new features I'm looking at, is that that the CGI standard library now has a profile for HTML5. Which that's right. Okay, but why is the CGI standard library still a thing? <laughs> <laughs> because the internet is that thing still around? Mind you, the CGI li library isn't even really what it sounds like because it's, know, it's, it's mainly used like for HTML building. Thing. It's it's mainly used as an HTML tag builder. Not it's not like uh it's not so much as as a way to access like the standard CGI variables. Um, no, Avdi, everybody does require CGI. CGI dot escape HTML. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it gets used for. <laughs> yeah, which totally makes sense. It's it's it's. Very easy to explain that to to newbies that you require the CGI module to escape HTML. So yeah, I mean that that's if if I could select one one focus, you know, for the next version of Ruby, it would be okay. Let's stabilize the the language feature set for a while and just go through and and update 
and cull the standard library and just make it more consistent. So you want yeah. them to do so, some garbage collection on the standard libraries? Yeah, yeah. The, now, the one of the things that had been discussed about uh, in in a lot of um, in a lot of depth for Ruby two was trying to jamify a lot of standard lib. So and, there is progress there. Can I explain it? Yeah, please do. Ruby two includes a new version of Ruby gems that does lay the groundwork for moving the standard library to gems. So. Even though it hasn't been done yet, some infrastructure is moving that way. We're on that path, basically. That, That's yeah, I, I did notice another change to RubyGems, which is that it uh, can interoperate with Bundler. The, yeah, I, I think I heard something about that, but I don't, I don't know the details. Um, I don't know a lot of the details either. This um, Ruby 2.0.0 in detail... Um, page that uh, you linked us to has a little discussion of it and basically you can do like gem install but you can pass it a, a pointer to your gem file and then it will use the information in the gem file about versions to um, load a, you know a version of the uh, gem that's compatible with your gem file definition that's cool so we're not done with cool new features can we hit just a couple more before we call it a day sure yeah Katrina and then, and then actually, I have one philosophical question I want to ask after that. Okay. Katrina actually hit my favorite feature early on in the show, but we rode right over it. Katrina, do you want to tell us about the new garbage collector? Yes, I do. Um, you're going to have to correct me if I get the details wrong, because I'm not very strong on uh, Linux fundament fundamentals. But in Unix-like um, operating systems, there's... There's um, something called copy on write, which means that when you fork a process, if the both of the processes are just reading data, for, um, shared data, then they can keep that data as shared. They don't have to make their own copy, and they only make their own copy of the data when they mutate this. And this is really important in the old garbage collection, which um, is the mark and sweep style. So every object, every um, every Ruby value which can be anything from strings and arrays to just nodes in your in the syntax tree of your program, are these C objects which have both the value and some metadata. And whether or not something was flagged to not be uh, garbage collected was in the metadata of this object. And this means that the object itself was changed. This means like when you're going through to decide if it's gonna be garbage collected or not, Every single object that is still living in your in your program gets the metadata gets marked to say that it's still alive, which means that every single process has to copy it, has to have a copy of this. And in the new garbage collection, there's um, there's sort of a mirroring structure to, that mirrors the heap with all of the objects in it that just has a bitmap of zeros and ones to decide whether or not that thing is going to be garbage collected which means that you can now share objects like all of the, your whole program structure um, and any variables or, or any constants, um, things that don't change can be shared across processes, which means that you use a lot less um, memory as you're running. Did I get that right, James? You nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when, in Unix, whenever you would fork a process and I know everybody that's thinking, oh, it's fork, I can stop listening. But actually, it affects everybody because you use a web server and your web server probably forks. 
Um, so whenever you fork a process, you get this great benefit of copy on write for of Unix just made a new entry in the process table and you were done almost instantly. And then the second the Ruby garbage collector ran, you lost that entire benefit because it walked through and touched every single object in the system, right? So um, that whole benefit was gone. Now with the bitmap garbage collector, the notes are kept in a separate place, right? Away from the object. So now you get euphoric, you get copy on write, the data isn't copied. And when the garbage collector runs, only that map changes. So only it needs to be updated and all those objects are never copied over until you write them. So yeah, right. huge. And those advantage. maps are, those maps are really tiny. So right, cause they're just um, bits, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. If you want to, if you want to get a little bit more into uh, processes, forking, copy on write, and stuff like that, we we did an episode about it when we did our book club on working with Unix processes with Jesse Stormer, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. There's also an excellent blog article from Pat Shaughnessy where he digs in and says why the garbage collector in 2.0 is so exciting, and it really is my favorite feature in 2.0. The so, so it gives us copy on write and stuff, but uh, there's always been this kind of performance thing with garbage collection and, you know, how the memory grows as you let a Ruby process run long. Um, are any of those issues solved? So, uh, yeah, this is, this actually leads to another thing I think is absolutely awesome trend in Ruby 2.0 that I just hope catches on like wildfire and keeps going. They've really done a lot lately about improving your window into the inner workings of Ruby. So like to give some examples of that in Ruby 2.0, we have this new trace point, which is like set trace funk, if you know that one, on steroids and object oriented, <laughs> which is really cool. I mean, you can turn it on and off in places. You can have multiple traces going getting different data out of them, really neat stuff. And then uh, object space has been enhanced to give you things like reachable objects um, so that you can determine, you know, given this object, what objects can be reached from there, which is very helpful in like finding memory leaks. Um, there's a blog post I'll throw in the show notes and it's only in Japanese, but you can read the Ruby and the code is for basically finding memory leaks in Ruby, just using this method. And if you combine that with things that were brought in in Ruby 1.9, like uh, the garbage profiler, the garbage collector profiler, and uh, object space has a mem size of in Ruby 1.9, you can start to build really detailed images of what's going on in the inside Ruby to help you track down these problems. D-Trace supports been extended, expanded. So yeah, I, I really feel like they're trying to give you a window into that world. I'm really excited by the Ruby, Ruby VM instruction sequence module, which gives you the compiler decompiler for everything. Yeah. All right, we're running out of time, guys. Are there <laughs> okay, any other I guess I'm the only one excited about that. <laughs> so, so, does anyone want to mention 2H? 2H. Yeah, Not that's really. another oh, feature. Did I missed that one. <laughs> Do it, Josh. Okay, yeah. So, so 2H is kind of like 2S. It's a it's a standard conversion method, and uh, what it does is it converts the method the object in question into a hash, and this is uh, now part of what is it? OpenStruct. So you can pass uh, a hash. It's also to no it. class. The env object. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a, it's a lot of places, but there's now like this standard way of converting yeah. an object into a hash representation of it. Yeah, which, uh, I want to give a just a, a fair shout out as well. Andre Bernards uh, on the Parlay mailing list uh, mentioned this one. I asked for some Ruby 2.0 tips and tricks a couple days ago, and uh, he was the only one that uh, that replied with a Ruby 2.0 specific uh, one. Uh, an, a, another Parlayer whose name I cannot pronounce, Faisal and Jodat. Um, uh, wrote back with a gem cleanup, but that was a, a another feature as well. But uh, yeah, definitely shout outs to the parlayers for uh, coming in with some really good tips. The two H or the two H was in there, which is very cool. So, sounds like uh, have we hit it all? I'm sure we the definitely features hit the highlights. Yeah. So, so if we can cover it all in an hour, there needs to be more. So so bef before before Avdi gets to his philosophy, how should people install Ruby two? I mean, is there is there a like a good blog post about how to get set it up? Is it just RVM or or uh I, I, I'm pretty sure RVM and R RBNV um will will allow you to install them. Um as with anything else, I mean you can always just go and Download the source and run dot slash configure with whatever options are important to you, and then make and make install, and that'll put it in. Yeah, place. at least on I Linux with RBM, it was stupidly easy. Yeah, with Ruby build, it was really straightforward as well. Yeah, I don't know about Windows is the only one that I'm not sure on. If anyone has information about that, we'd really appreciate that. Just put a comment in the show notes, um, and you can just do that by going to rubyrogues.com. Okay. All right, so philosophy. All right, so here's a, a philosophical question to maybe end on. Every language, as it grows and matures, and you know, especially every time a, a, a language has a major feature, a major revision, there's always going to be a set of people that say, okay, it finally jumped the shark this time. And <laughs> I guess the question is, can, you, can a language just keep evolving and keep growing or does it eventually get too big? You know, does it just have too much stuff? Is there a point you think Ruby will be done as far as you're concerned? Do you think Ruby will be done at some point soon? Um, and, uh, and any further like language experimentation ought to be in a new language? Or do you think it'll, it can successfully evolve, uh, you know, indefinitely? I'm, I'm thinking particularly of like, you know, a lot of people have said that Java is now just too big a language with all the generics and, and, uh, and other things that have been added over the years. Um, and of course, people have been saying that about C++ pretty much since C++ first started exi existing. So <laughs> what do you think? I think Ruby's going to continue to grow. Um, I, I think we're already seeing people who who want the ecosystem. I mean, I mean, Ruby obviously has, okay, maybe not obviously, I assert that Ruby has the fastest growing, fastest moving ecosystem of any language ever in any community. Um, and the people who are pushing fast, you know, Evolve, change, grow. They're they're not they're not willing to sit around and wait for Ruby. They're the ones jumping off and going off. Well, I'm going to go to Closure. I'm going to go do Erlang. I'm going to go do this other thing. And then we turn around a year later, and Ruby 2.0 is starting because these people come back to Ruby because they love it, and they bring right. these ideas back from these other crazy languages. And you know uh, things like you know refinements and things like Enumerable Lazy pretty clearly have like Enumerable Lazy pretty clearly is coming. Uh, that's insanity being, you know, back contaminated from these people that have jumped off into Haskell and and you know Lisp and 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 those languages. And in two thousand nine, I think it was, um, 
uh, Guido froze Python for two years to let the reference implementations catch up. And I remember just being shocked and horrified by this, but it, it really touches back on the philosophies of the two different communities. Python, there's one right way to do it, and I think Python is a very mature language that most problems that it's going to face in the next five to ten years, they've kind of figured out one good way to solve that. And with Ruby, uh, Ruby's constantly questioning itself and saying, well, isn't, is there a complete reinvention of what we could do? And I'm a little excited about it. Well, I'm a lot excited about it. I'm, I'm a little trepidatious of it because like Josh pointed out, we're dragging in some very non-OO things into what used to be a language that touted itself as more OO than Python. Um, and I think Ruby can still make that claim, um, but there's certainly there's certainly a lot of dead birds on the doormat. There's a lot of contamination, a lot of stuff that's been dragged in from FP and from from you know concurrent programming and that that sort of thing that are being brought back into Ruby. And I genuinely think Ruby three is going to be a completely different beast. But I, I I also think it'll still still have a gill. So that's just my thought. <laughs> the, th the thing that I see with a lot of this is that um, most of the changes that we talked about, you know, they don't deeply change the way that I'm going to write Ruby. And so, you know, like 200, did it jump the shark? Well, no, because it doesn't, it doesn't make a huge difference for 99% of what I'm doing. Um, you know, eventually will it change to the point where we don't, where it doesn't have what I need or, you know, changes the way that I do things in a way that I don't prefer? Well, possibly. But, uh, you know, for right now, I don't think Ruby 2.0.0 is it. Um, I, I think some of the other things that we've talked about with, like, the size of the standard library and, uh, you know, some of these things that may become more standard, um, like the keyword arguments that some people will like and some people will not, um, you know, and, and, and these other ideas that we're bringing into the language, you know, may eventually change the way that people use it, you know, for good or for ill. But for right now, I, I really don't see that this is going to hurt the Ruby community in any meaningful way at all. I think there is a, a, a potential there. I think that, you know, as David was saying, the you know, the more functional uh, features that we get in the language, the more uh, opportunity there is for people to create, uh, what do you call it, a multi-paradigm uh, yeah. code. And and that's when things get confusing. Uh, that you know, I, I think that a, a language that is multiple design centers has no design center. And yeah, yeah it, it, well, it gets very confusing it, how to structure things. It'll be very interesting to see what the community does, you know, in response. Because I mean, like, like uh, send can access any method, public or private, and uh, you know, monkey patching uh, can modify anything at any time. And we, as a community, we developed a torch and pitchfork brigade that basically said, if you're a library, don't you dare monkey patch something that's going to come out of that library into everybody else. Unless you are specifically advertising that that's what you you provide as a service, but if you're just you know doing your own manipulations, don't don't monkey patch globally. And um, like when I talk to Python people, they're still terrified of monkey patching because oh you can change anything at any time. No no no, it it doesn't happen. It's like a wiki. Yes, you can delete all of Wikipedia, but it it doesn't happen because the community will will respond. And I I do think we are going to see some multi language. Uh, program or multi what did you multi-centric programs come out and I think they're going to have some unique challenges and eventually some people are going to step up and say just stop doing that um, you know either write FP Ruby or write OO Ruby but don't 
try to do them both. And and yeah, who knows? The FP Ruby stuff might die out and it might be, you know what, talk to a remote service written in, you know, closure or something. I I I, I don't know. I I I just I what I, I guess what I'm saying is I think the community will will respond with don't do that um when we discover some some problems. But I think there might be some cool things that we find along the way. Yeah, and there are definitely some uh, things like uh, blocks and procs and some of these other things that, to to my thinking anyway, are more FP than OO that are powerful things when we couple them with the OO. So yeah, it it's it it's really interesting, you know, some of these things that are being brought in and just where they could be taken. So mm-hmm. you know, it it could it could wind up being a major win, or it could be like Dave said, uh, well, don't do that, do it this way. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna check on that one. I think Ruby's always been a very multi paradigm language with the scripting and all the crazy tricks it you know grabs from Perl like flip flop operators and stuff like that, and you know up to really solid OO. But the iterators really did come out of the functional community. You know, and I I feel like it's always been kind of multi paradigm, and we're seeing it import new things from different places and stuff, but. I'm sure there is a breaking point to that, but I don't feel like we're there. That said, yeah. I wouldn't lose any sleep if we're, uh, refinements are removed in a later version. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks unless Katrina or did Avdi say something about this? I don't remember. I just wanted to hear from you, from you folks. Okay. All right. Well, you've heard from us folks. Katrina, do you have anything to add before we go to picks? Um, I guess kind of. I really liked Gary Bernard's talk on boundaries, um, where he talked about his uh, FOO model, um, where he kind of combines, I guess it's the imperative shell functional core that he's been talking about, that where he's able to combine two different approaches, but with a very clean sort of separation. I really like that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, lots of people are really understanding the valuable of like immutable objects, right? And I think that's happening because of the the big interest in up and coming uh, functional languages. Yep, It'll be really interesting to see what happens. All right, let's do the picks. Uh, James, what are your picks? All right, um, I've got a few, but I'll I'll run through them pretty quick here. Um, First, this is a great uh, blog post from Mislav, and he did it out of something, uh, a discussion on Parlay, but it's it's called Git Merge versus Rebase. So if you're one of those people like who doesn't know, you know, when should I merge, when should I rebase, or you've read all the arguments out there and you, every time you read one you think, okay, but that's still kind of weird, you know. Um, this is the most practical and best description I've ever seen of what merge is, what it's good for, when you want to do it, what rebase is, um, what it's good for, and when you want to do it. So uh, really good reading there. And then a buddy of mine, Paul, hi, Paul, um, got me hooked on this this YouTube channel, uh, Smarter Every Day, I think it's called. Yeah, Smarter Every Day. And it's these awesome science videos that just have all kinds of great stuff in them. you just have to go check it out. But to give two examples of, of uh, ones that are amazing, uh, there's like the honey rope coil effect, uh, which is how when you drip out honey, it will coil around itself. Uh, and they explain all the physics of that, and it's totally awesome. 
another one that's great is the Prince Rupert drop, uh, which is like this piece of glass that's so hard at the tip you can't break it, but you can just barely tap the tip and the entire thing will shatter. And they explain to you how that happens and why. And all the way down to what happens when a baby takes its first breath and like literally biological changes in the heart at that point. Super cool YouTube channel for science geeks. Those are my picks. Awesome. Katrina, what are your picks? I have three today and none of them are programming related, I'm afraid. The I've been thinking a lot about thinking lately and how I'd really like to become a better thinker. And I came across a book called Five Elements of Effective Thinking by two um, mathematics professors. And it's a, it's a small book. Um, and I read through it and then immediately turned back to the first page and started reading it again. So it gives you some, some things, um, some very practical strategies that you can use to improve, improve your thinking. Another um, thing is, so there's a blogger that I've been reading for a few years. Um, his name is Venkatesh Rao, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. He writes a blog on at ribbonfarm.com. He's a mm-hmm. an aerospace engineer, I believe, and but he he is this deep thinker about everything. Like he thinks about so many interesting topics and then thinks about them deeply and synthesizes these amazing blog posts where he sort of shares his journey and it's it's always it's varied, it's deep, it um it reaches across he's he's able to really go into the nuances and the depths of things and I just really appreciate that. So that's the second one, ribbonfarm.com. And the third thing um, has nothing to do with thinking. Um, utilikilt.com. I wish I were a guy so yes. that I could wear utilikilts um, <laughs> without it just being a shirt, a skirt, because they're awesome. So anyway, that's my. Those are my picks. Nice. Yeah, I I, I think that utilikilt is based in Portland. So anybody who who goes to RailsConf this year can go check it out and, and pick up a kilt. Cool. <laughs> All right, uh, Josh. What are your picks? Uh, this is a uh, my first pick is something that um, I've been using for a while, and it's so awesome that I just don't even think about it um, until I had to update it recently, and I realized I hadn't updated it in a few years. This is um, you know you know people use ad blockers to you know control you know nasty content in their browser, and uh, I, I was having a phishing site. Uh, show up on a site that I use in its, you know, like ads or something, which was causing me grief. So I got rid of it really easily. There's this like poor man's ad blocker that's basically an etc. hosts file replacement. You you basically dump in I don't know thousands of host names into your into your etc. hosts file that um, map all of those hosts to the IP address zero dot zero dot zero dot zero. And so it, it, so you just never get a route to any of any of these places. You're completely protected from, uh, you know, any requests to those hosts and it works great. You end up seeing a lot of, uh, either like, you know, uh, those little broken, um, image, uh, icons in your browser, but I can deal with that. So that's, that's at someone who cares.org slash hosts slash zero. And it's a, it's a really nice project. I've, I've been using it for years and it works great. And I, and it's, uh, it's, you know, pretty awesome. So, although, although a uh, little warning, if you're using Hulu, 
Hulu gets really upset when it can't connect to the various ad servers. So there are some situ there are some situations where you have to disable this to be able to use things. But um, in general, it's just awesome and works well. Uh, so that's that's uh, one thing. And then um, let's see. Everybody knows that I'm a huge fan of Avatar: The Last Airbender, and I've I've made other picks related to that. So I, I now have a pick about the next comic book in the uh, series of Avatar stories that's called The Search, and it's about Zuko's mom and what happened to her. And uh, the, the first, uh, first issue of that's out now. So people should read that, it's awesome. And then uh, my last tip is, uh, it, speaking of being known well for my picks, uh, I've, I've picked a couple of these like, um, you know, cool Twitter accounts that are uh, you know, like, you know, just fun things to follow on Twitter. And uh, this is one that Avdi even picked uh, for me, like the day after I discovered it. This is Picard Tips. And is basically Captain Picard of the Enterprise D, you know, Star Trek Next Generation, uh, taking lessons from the shows and uh, recasting them as tips for, uh, you know, like pro tips for either managers or you know, whatever else you're doing. And uh, I find them just like terribly amusing and also, uh, you know, often really uh, insightful. So, you know, things like um, Picard management tip, tolerate failure, not incompetence, learn the difference. <laughs> nice. So, so it's, a, it, you know, or, or things like hire aliens. It's no big deal. So, <laughs> so I just, I'm a, I'm, anyway, I'm enjoying that a lot. So I recommend following that one. And that's my tips. This, or that's my uh, tips, my picks. <laughs> Those are your Picard tips this week. All right. Uh, Abdi, what are your picks? So I've been kind of out of the tech orbit this past week um my wife and uh teenage daughter attended the uh, art of the belly belly dance conference in ocean city maryland and my wife brought uh, the children along because she didn't want the uh the baby to wean in her absence and she brought me along to watch the children uh while she was attending the conference so um i found myself with uh three children including a, a babe in arms uh young children at Ocean City, Maryland in sub-freezing weather for three days. And um, that was an interesting challenge. Uh, but I discovered that I discovered the, uh, the old pro chain of uh, mini golf places on in Ocean City. And they actually have these giant indoor, I elaborate indoor mini golf setups. And uh, so I, I uh, introduced the little ones to mini golf, which they were highly entertained by. The, the four-year-old actually got into the game aspect of it and uh, getting the ball into the hole, although he used some fairly unorthodox methods of doing so. The, uh, the two-year-old mostly just liked clambering over the, um, over the, the scenery. But uh, yeah, if you're ever uh, stuck in Ocean City uh, or someplace like that in freezing weather, and uh, nothing to do um, with children to entertain. I, I highly recommend checking out the uh, the indoor mini golf places if it has any. Uh, so I guess that's kind of a pick. Anyway, when I got back, uh, something I had <laughs> something I had I had ordered uh, arrived, and this is somewhat technical. Um, I I am anticipating another trip uh, this coming week, and uh, I wanted to be able to do some Ruby Tapas recordings while I was away, and I didn't want to use the built-in mic 
on my laptop for that because that would sound horrible. So I ordered a, a bunch of travel travel recording gear, and particularly I or- ordered a new microphone, which is the uh, the Samson Go mic, and I'm already really impressed with it. First of all, it's adorable. It's it's this tiny little folding thing, and it's just. I mean, I showed it to teenage daughter, and she and she basically said, "Aw." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it sounds really good, and it actually. Um, has a leg up on my current uh, blue snowball in that it has a um, a built-in monitor port. You can plug head a uh, pair of headphones into its monitor port, and and as I discovered, not only is it just a, a direct monitor of the uh, you know analog monitor of the input, it also functions as a sound card, a, a sound output uh, when you plug plug it into the USB on the computer, so it can actually um, take the software software output, like say, you know, somebody on Skype or something, combine it with the direct monitor of your voice and you can hear both, both together. So, um, yeah, really nice little, little, uh, microphone that packs up tiny and can be had gotten on Amazon for like 40 bucks. Sweet. And it's USB if I didn't make that clear. All right, David, what are your picks? Oh my gosh! Uh, it's been a couple of a couple of weeks, um, so I'm going to try and go through these really, really quickly. Um, and it did not help that uh, James and Katrina both uh, triggered other picks for me. So um, the first one is uh, Towns, the game. Um, if you like Minecraft and you like SimCity, there's a good chance that you will like this hybrid of the two. Um, it's basically Minds of Moria or Rogue or or, or Diablo. Only you manage the town above the Hellmouth, and you you open up a mine, and that exposes the town to monsters. And if you've built a tavern, heroes will show up, and they will then go down into the dungeon and clear it out for you. Um, one thing I will tell you about towns is do not attempt to even open the tutorials that come with the game. They absolutely stink. So the companion pick to this is go to YouTube and look for Splattercat Gaming. Um, or just go to YouTube and uh, look for t- uh, Towns uh, tutorial or Towns game. Don't look for Towns Let's Play. I mean, the, a lot of people are doing those. But uh, if you look for Towns tutorial, you'll find a guy named Splattercat Gaming who's he'll get you up and up and running in your first you know month as a, as a town uh, quite well, and you'll be ready to handle the the monsters that the heroes uh, uh, come dragging up to the surface on accident all the time, basically. Um, my second pick is uh, James. You mentioned uh, the Get Smarter Every Day. I have a Twitter account for people to follow. It's called Science Porn, and um, it's uh, it's totally safe for work. But what it is is it's a Twitter account that just posts just bizarre and amazing science facts. Absolutely gorgeous uh, Earth science pictures, like volcanoes, Northern Lights. Uh, there's their their most recent picture is a picture of the of sunrise right after a new moon or right before a new moon in uh, at the North Pole and the moon is like a thousand times bigger than the sun because of the forced pers- perspective it's just amazing um, so follow science porn on Twitter they're absolutely amazing um, and then the last one is uh, Katrina picked uh, Venkatesh Rao and uh, Venkat is just amazing he runs a newsletter called be slightly evil and uh, I, I just can't recommend it highly enough. He started, it all started with, I think what he's turned into a book. Uh, I think Twin, Trina has, uh, Katrina has linked, linked it in the, the show notes. 
um, the Gervais principle, uh, which is based on interoffice sociodynamics, based on the TV show The Office. And uh, <laughs> no. if you, it's it's a very serious article, and it will blow your mind if you do nothing else. Just read the second installation, which is Power Talk, Baby Talk, Gamer Talk, and Loser Talk, um, or Posture Talk, which is uh, how. Uh, the three types of people in an organization, which are sociopaths, clueless people, and losers, interact with each other. And it will be very, it's funny, and then it's really uncomfortable when he starts describing the way people talk to you, or the way you talk to other people, when suddenly you realize, holy crap, I'm clueless, or holy crap, I'm a loser, um, or cool, I'm a sociopath. Um, that didn't happen to me, but... Uh, I, I strive. It, it's it's a be slightly evil is a, a very pragmatic newsletter that helps you strive to become a sociopath um, for uh, you know for the greater good. And uh, his the his his point is is that uh, to be maximally effective, you can't just go around mincing mincing you know and prancing and lying to people. Sometimes you have to uh, say what you mean and take what you want. And uh, sometimes that's a little bit sociopathic. And so it's a fantastic newsletter. This sounds like a modern version of Machiavelli's The Prince. Uh, he mentions multiple times that he idolizes Machiavelli, and he has refrained from writing like a review or his own take on Machiavelli because he says, I'm, I'm different enough from Machiavelli, and I also respect <laughs> him enough that I don't dare touch that classic. But yes, yes he, he certainly has given Machiavelli a nod. By the way, just as a as a tangential pick here, The Prince is an amazing read. It's very short, and it's actually a book on how to provide good governance. Yes. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and do my picks. Um, my, I, I don't really have anything that I've run across this week that I really want to talk about. So I'm just going to talk about some of the stuff that I have going on that I want to share. The first one is is that I've had a ton of people asking me when an iOS podcast is coming, and I have an answer for you. Next week, um, we're going to record cool. the first episode um, a week from yesterday, which means that it will probably come out um, a week from yesterday when this one comes out. Um, and uh, so we're going to be putting that one up. It's going to be it. And, and I have to give credit to Josh for the name of the show. It's going to be the iFreak Show. And uh, you can get it at <laughs> ifreakshow.com. The other That's one, awesome. the other one that I want to bring up, and I don't have the landing page up for it yet, but it should be up by the time this episode goes up, is um, I'm doing a Rails Power Up. Um, I'm doing the Rails Ramp Up course right now for beginners. Rails Power Up is going to be you can sign up for just the ones you want, or you can sign up for the whole mess of webinars. Um, but basically, it's going to be training on specific advanced things in Rails. Um, so I'm looking at doing engines, uh, Facebook apps, um, doing an in-depth on the, the um, asset pipeline and things like that that I know people struggle with, um, even though they understand kind of the basics of the MVC and some of the other pieces of Rails. So if you want to learn about what's there and what I'm going to be talking about, then go to railspowerup.com. And uh, I guess we'll wrap up the show. It's been nice having all of the rogues on. For an yeah, episode. for the first time. For the first time. That's wow. very cool. So, uh, yeah, so next week, I'm not sure what we're talking about. I don't think we have anyone on the schedule yet. So, um, but that will be our 100th episode. So, uh, stay, oh, oh. stay tuned. Clip show, clip show. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, let's wrap the show up. We'll catch you all next week. Okay. Ciao. All right. Ciao. Bye. -bye.